We'll be reading from two passages this evening. We begin with James chapter 1, verse 26. Brethren, let us hear the Word of God. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now turn to chapter 3. James chapter 3. We're going to read an extended passage. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, Yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, And therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness and wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. May the Lord bless the reading of this precious word to our hearts this evening. Brethren, last Wednesday, I actually changed what I originally intended to do. 
uh, and preached uh, the first of a fairly lengthy series of messages on the tongue. And uh, I was quite surprised at the response to that. I was not going to do another uh, message on this for a while, but uh, the encouragement and apparently the need for this uh, was such that uh, I've decided to go ahead and uh, preach another message this evening regarding this. I don't know that I will do the whole series in sequence at this point, depending on our needs and the things that I see uh, that we need to hear, but uh, I have chosen to return to this particular subject. So this evening's message is entitled, A World of Iniquity. A World of Iniquity. Christianity is the life of Christ miraculously worked out in the life of God's elect through the gracious power of the Holy Spirit. Saving faith shows itself in a Christ-centered life characterized by loving obedience to the God of saving grace. Now, James emphasizes our being doers of the Word, as we saw in our message Wednesday, and not hearers only. And in that context, one of the things that he points out was bridling our tongue. We are not doers of the Word if we are not actively pursuing that activity that Scripture calls bridling the tongue. Doers of the Word learn by the mercy the long-suffering, the grace, and the power of God to bridle their tongues. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. It is futile. It is empty. It is worthless. <clears throat> so, according to James, the tongue is a measure of true Christianity. God willing, <clears throat> this evening, we will consider these heads. First, the power of the tongue. <clears throat> Secondly, the destructive character of the tongue. And finally, the one hope for the tongue. So let's start with the power of the tongue. First of all, there is the responsibility of teachers in bridling the tongue. This is what he begins, chapter 3, with, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Teachers <clears throat> have been appointed by God, filled and gifted with the Holy Spirit, to guide the Lord's people according to the Word of God. And as Paul tells Timothy, there are to be examples to the flock. So teachers, though they are not perfect and will not be in this life, are clearly obligated in holy love to Christ to set an example of obedience in their lives to Christ. And that includes this issue of bridling our tongues. In general... A master is one who is superior to others, either in power, authority, knowledge, 
or in some other respect. In other words, a master, as it says here, my brethren, be not many masters, a master rules, governs, or directs. Master can be a term of address, like Mr. or Sir, or it can refer to one's uh, one who owns slaves. It can refer to a king over his subjects, to a head of a house, to a husband over his wife. Oh, we haven't heard that one lately, have we? When's the last time you heard a wife address her husband as master? Hardly in our day. <clears throat> it can also be an instructor. Schools in Britain actually refer to teachers as master, and that's actually the usage that's reflected here. And master basically points to teachers as it is used in this passage. <clears throat> now, what is the responsibility of masters? What is the responsibility of teachers? Obviously, one who teaches the Word of God is guiding and directing the lives of others. Now, again, not by his strength, but by instructing in the Word of God and leading by example. This is not a tyranny. It's not to be an authoritarian, uh, crushing thing, but a guiding, a shepherding, according to the Word of God. Now, this position of authority comes with very high responsibility, and the pitfalls are enormous. Teachers in the early churches of Jesus Christ were roughly the equivalent of rabbis in the synagogues. They taught and applied the gospel and the growing body of apostolic instructions to the churches. Remember, there was no New Testament at that time. There were the apostles who established the churches, <clears throat> and they would write epistles to those churches. As issues would arise, they would direct, they would guide by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was God's Spirit which put them in the place of governing and directing the lives of God's children while overseeing their spiritual well-being. And moreover, the early churches were comprised of many who were poor and could not read, which put the teachers in positions sometimes of prestige as well. And that's why they sometimes got puffed up and got a big head and needed to be reproved. <clears throat> So the responsibility of the teachers is not simply to get up and give lectures, but to live and embody the instruction that they're giving. They are to be servants and shepherds of God's people, graciously leading, but firm as needed, in the discipline of the flock of Christ, always bearing in mind that these are Christ's sheep. He bought them they're His. That is why such a strong warning. Be not many masters. You don't just set yourself up and say, hey, you know, I just I want to teach. I just got a burning desire to get up there and tell everybody what I think the Bible means. That doesn't mean you're a teacher. You have to be ready to live and sacrifice yourself on behalf of those who in general and for the most part 
are slow to learn and often resistant to the things you're saying. Because in our flesh, we all still despise authority. Nevertheless, the new heart responds to the voice of the Master in the Word and as it is lived out by those appointed of God to be the Masters, the teachers in Christ's assemblies. That is why we speak next of the condemnation of teachers. We looked at the meaning of masters and the responsibility of masters. Now we look at the condemnation that's mentioned here. Because of the great responsibility upon them, because these are Christ's sheep, teachers will receive a greater and stricter examination, if I can say it that way, a greater condemnation. This doesn't mean to hell. In the day of judgment. This is not a judgment and a damnation, but it is a giving it is a giving account of our stewardship. We will answer to the master about how we have handled his sheep. Brethren, that's very sobering. That's why I encourage you to pray for the elders of this assembly, always. We're made of exactly the same thing you are. We face and struggle with the same temptations. We have not arrived. If you spend day after day with us here in the church and in the ministries, you know that. That is why there needs to be much prayer. We will give account to God for how we have handled His Word with His children. Therefore, this is very, very sobering. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. I need to have a long, hard look at Brother Stephen and he needs to look back at me with the same intensity when we read these passages. We must give account. But notice what it says. Obey them. Obey them. Obey them. It doesn't say, well, sit down, look at the options, and if you like what they have to say, go along with it when it's convenient. It says, obey them that have the rule. Because the presupposition is that they are not coming to give you their word. They're coming to give you the word of Christ. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls. This is never to be just a preaching station. And many churches have become that or have never been anything but that. Everybody comes in, they sing their same three warm-up songs, the preacher gets up and gives his message and it may be a wonderful message. And then they all go home and that's it. But brethren, that is not the same thing as understanding what it means to obey them that have the rule over you and that are watching for your souls. 
shepherding the flock of God. That's a day-by-day sacrifice of life for the well-being of God's children and the edification, the building up of the body. We watch for your souls. We're not your lords. We're not your bosses. There is one head of the church. But we've been appointed under Him to take His Word and apply it to the lives of God's children, expecting them to walk in it submissively. Not to our glory, but to His. When we as a body walk together in the Word of God, there is unity and there is glory to Christ. And there is something here that once you taste it, brethren, you want more of it. You want to walk in it. You can't wait to get there. You want to stay in it. There is blessing in submitting to the authority of the local assembly. That is why membership in a church is vital. You need to submit yourself to them who watch over your souls to point you to the Word of God to Christ and the power of God's grace and Spirit. They watch for your souls as they that must give account. Take them together. As they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For those of you that have had children that drag their feet and give you troubles and trials in every step of your parenting, you know how very hard that is. I have heard parents say, after having a particularly difficult firstborn and then having maybe a second child that was a little easier to deal with, saying, if I had not had this second child, I would have thought that parenting was just simply miserable. Now, uh, not attacking you firstborns, by the way, though sometimes you can be a little difficult. Now, the point that I'm making is that Sometimes we forget that those who are leading have the responsibility to give the word, lead by example, and then answer to Christ for what they've done. What James, uh, what, the, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, don't make that a miserable job for them. Hear them, examine them, be Berean. Take what they're saying. Don't take what they're saying just because they say it. Examine the Word of God. Make sure that they're preaching to you and teaching you the Word of God and not simply their own opinions. But then when you find what they're saying in the Word of God, then, friend, it's the voice of Christ. Walk in it. Walk in it. That they may do it with joy and not with grief. It is I hear from pastors, I talk to pastor friends all the time, and it's, it is in our day in this nation, attempting to pastor a flock is one of the most difficult things on the planet. Because we've got a bunch of people that have been raised up thinking that everything is their liberty. As long as they call it Christian liberty, they can do it. That, you know, they hate authority, and anybody that tells them from the Word of God that they ought to do this or to refrain from that, that they're king Pharisees and that they're legalists, and the, the bonds and straitjackets of legalism are choking their, their spiritual life, all this, 
stuff, it can be a real grief to pastor God's people. Brethren, you're being admonished from God's Word to so walk with the pastors of the assembly as that it might be joyful for them and not a grief. And notice what he says following that. For that is unprofitable for you. It's profitable when you walk in the Word of God. It's that simple what he's saying. Hear them. They're going to give account for what they've said to you. Hear them and walk according to the Word of God. If you don't, it is unprofitable for you. Now let me press on from this. I simply begin this with this admonition to teachers, to masters, because we have a responsibility, first of all, to bridle our own tongues. If we don't, how can we expect the Lord's children to? We must learn to forge that bit and bridle and learn to use our tongues, seasoned with salt, gracious, So pray for us. Now, in chapter 3, after this strong admonition, in verse 1, verse 2 says, For in many things we offend all. And you notice, he doesn't exclude teachers there. For in many things we, he includes himself, offend all. Now, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man. And when he says perfect there, he's meaning mature. One who has grown to a place of self-control. He gives us now three illustrations regarding bridling the tongue. So important a thing is this. He gives us three illustrations so that we might get a hold of how important this is and how difficult an endeavor it is. He begins with the illustration of horses and bits. Something that we can all relate to, I trust. He says, If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect, a mature man, and able also to bridle the whole body. If a man is finally able to get a hold of his tongue, he's gone a long way in bridling all of his lust and drives. Then he says, Behold. He says, Now look. Look here. Focus with me. I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about. We put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body. Now a horse is a large, beautiful, powerful Creature. A bit is very small. A piece of metal about about that long. You've ever seen one? Very small in comparison to the horse. Yet that very small bit can turn a powerful stallion around. Here is a beautiful, strong creature, full of life and energy, used for carrying or drawing heavy loads or for riding. Racing, hunting, 
jumping, and yet kept in control by a tiny bit. Then he says in verse 4, Behold, now look again. I'm going to give you another example. He talks about ships and helms. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Now a ship is a very great vessel. A rudder is very small. And during the Hellenistic and Roman times, ships could reach a length of 180 feet. That's a big boat in those days. And a breadth of 45 feet and 29 feet from deck to bottom. The Jewish historian tells us that he traveled to Rome on a ship that carried 600 people. Now, that may sound small to us today, but that was, that was the ocean liner of those days. That was gigantic, 600 people. <clears throat> and in our day, we have ships that are so large, they're like small floating cities. They don't not only carry hundreds, some of them can carry thousands. <clears throat> and yet the principle remains the same. The largest ships that we have today are still turned by small rudders. A pilot can turn such a mighty ship any way he wants with a small rudder. Finally, he says in verse 5, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Now, stop and think about how simple all of his illustrations are, and yet they're profound. He says... He takes something out of everyday life, all of them very simple for us to understand. Children can understand this. Big horse, little bit, you can guide that big old horse. Big boat, little rudder, you can turn that great big old boat. It can be controlled. There's power in small things. Okay? And then he says fire. Now we all can understand fire. And he says, How great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. The word translated matter, how great a matter a little fire kindleth, actually means wood or forest. Some of the modern translations uh, reflect that perhaps a little more clearly for us. The primitive meaning of matter was wood. The King James translators were simply speaking in the the language that they understood and uh, communicated to those of their day. Now, what is set before us is yet another picture that we can all readily understand. All it takes is a very small spark and the right conditions to start an awesome, terrifying forest fire. When a small fire becomes what is called a great fire, The flames burn fuel over a much wider range than a small surface fire. 
This kind of fire can leap over unburned areas. Great fires create their own weather. I did some reading on this. And when it gets up into the top of the trees, especially when they're very dry, and the wind blows on it just a little bit, it can drive that fire into great high walls of destruction. And they're so high and so hot, so intense in their burning, they start creating their own little weather atmospheres around them. The intense heat of the large burning area creates a huge surging draft which draws the heated smoke and air up into the sky. And this draft then pulls in a powerful draft of fresh air down to the ground level to feed the fire. So it becomes a self-perpetuating thing. You ever wonder why these things just keep going and they burn up thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres, millions of acres sometimes? Once it starts, it feeds itself and it keeps growing and it keeps growing and it creates an atmosphere that keeps it going. And brethren, that's exactly what the tongue does. You take a brother's reputation, you can take a lie and start spreading that little spark and boy, by the time it leaps up into the top of the trees and starts running across with all that dry flesh right there to hear oh brother so and so did that I knew it I knew it I didn't like the way he said this or that and then you tell it to this guy by the time it gets down to three or four people this guy's one one bubble away from being the antichrist and half the time the things aren't even true to begin with or there's something that's rooted in truth but pulled so much out of context that it just goes and feeds our depraved natures. Oh, we like to hear about this person and about that person. As a great fire continues to perpetuate itself, the hot air of the draft becomes more turbulent and it pulls burning particles and embers as well as flaming pine cones up into the air and then drops them on the ground in other places and that just starts another one and they race in every direction brethren I've seen pastors that can't that can't even preach in a, in a whole county in a whole parish in a, in a state because of things that have been circulated about them I've seen family members utterly destroyed by things circulating about them just like these great fires I've seen members in church sit down and break into tears in my presence and say, I don't know where all this got started. And they're here trying to explain to this and to that, and sometimes they don't even bother. It's like, let them say what they're going to say, and the fire just rages on. Well, the tongue is a serious matter, brethren. Before you recycle something you've heard about a brother or sister in Christ you need to say am I about to start a fire here am I looking at a tinder box that may be fixing to go up should I just put a bridle in here and keep it quiet 
We're far too easy to talk about others. Or even about ourselves in ways to puff ourselves up. But it is amazing that these these great fires even begin to scatter into other raging fires. And these start fires ahead of the main fire. And under these conditions, the very tops of a pine forest can explode into flame. This is what is called the fire crowning. And boy, at that, at that point, it's burning at its hottest and most destructive. Brethren, I've seen these things happen in churches over and over again when all it would take is quiet. Sit down. Be quiet until you know whether what you're about to repeat is the truth or not. And then you need the discretion from God to know whether it needs to be repeated. A crown fire throws even more firebrands into the air and so thoroughly burns the oxygen out of the air that people who try to hide in wells or root cellars are suffocated as the fire passes overhead. And brethren, sometimes what people set on fire with their tongues becomes so utterly destructive that you can't escape it. And it utterly ruins and destroys even when you try to get out of its way. Sheets of flame churning overhead. Balls of fire descend from the sky. Surges of flames shooting out of clouds of smoke. The Mack Lake Great Fire of 1980 released some 3.5 trillion BTUs which is roughly equivalent of 10 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs. A little flame can kindle a great fire. And that's exactly what the Word of God is telling us. How great a matter, how great a forest, a little fire kindleth. Let's consider, secondly then, the destructive character of the tongue, which should be obvious. The tongue is a fire. Now, what is fire? Now, those of you that like science could probably give me some good answer on that. I had to stop and do some thinking about that, do a little bit of reading. But the state of burning in which substances combine chemically with oxygen from the air and give out bright light, heat, and smoke was the best definition I could find in all the things I consulted. (laughs) But fire is the flame and glow produced when a combustible material is ignited under the right conditions. Brethren, I'll tell you what the combustible material is. The flesh. The flesh. The Spirit of God never provokes rumors. The Spirit of God is all about truth. Period. But the flesh is the tinderbox that can go up at any time. And we need to be very careful. Because any one of us can go up as a smoking torch in a moment. (whistles) 
All you need is the right conditions. Brethren, I've seen this over and over again. You begin to view a brother. You begin to view a sister a particular way. And then you hear something about them. And you go, ah, oh, that's the kind of person they are. Ah, I see. And now you've got a filter through which everything they do begins to come in. And you filter and process all of that that way. Oh, I know why I did that. Oh, I know why they do this. Yes, I see it. Yes, I understand. And then it's easy to say, you know, I can tell you why so-and-so did that. I hear it all the time. Do you know? When did the Lord open up their hearts for you to read? Oh, we're so quick to start making those judgments. And very often, the very thing, the very filter by which we're seeing everything has come from a wagging tongue that wasn't telling the truth. Sometimes it is sincerely done, so to speak, but it can be utterly destructive. But even when fire, my friends, is used for good purposes like cooking or heating, it's still always destructive. You've got to be very careful with fire. Always careful with fire. And if God's Word tells us that the tongue can kindle a great fire, we need to take heed and bow our heads before the living God and say, O Lord, may my tongue be used for praise. May my tongue be used for thanksgiving. May my tongue be used for edification. When, when necessary and when guided by the Word and the Spirit, may my tongue be used for reproof. But may it not be used to light that fire. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 27 and 28. Let's turn there. This is one of those times when we need to set our eyes right on the page. And read it together. Proverbs 16, verse 27. <clears throat> Notice what it says. An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is a burning fire. Same picture. Verse 28. A froward man soweth strife, and a whisperer separateth chief friends. Couldn't be any plainer. And brethren, I have seen this brought to stunning and tragic reality over the years. The longer I read the Word of God, the more glorious and yet more awesome its truths stand before us. He says it's the evil man that likes to go and dig up things about folk and one of the reasons he likes to do that is because in his lips is a burning fire. He likes to talk about people. He likes to talk about others. And notice, the froward man soweth strife. The froward there means perverse. Perverse means not being used for what it was made to do. He's saying his tongue is perverted. That is not what he was given a tongue for. The froward man soweth strife. And a whisperer 
And you know, sometimes that whispering comes this way. Oh, let's pray for brother so-and-so. Because did you know? And we cloak that filthiness with religious garb. Did you know about sister so-and-so? Oh, let's pray for her. Now, there are time to pray for the brethren. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But why don't you go pray with them? The Holy Spirit here paints the portrait of someone who is opposite of a righteous, holy, and godly man. Ungodly is literally a man of Belial. That means a worthless scoundrel. (laughs) And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is saying. The worthless scoundrel digs up evil so that he can use his tongue and spew out his fire. Sow his discord among God's children. And I can assure you, he will answer to the Most High. Froward does mean crooked, uh, crooked, twisted, and perverse. Burning means scorching. Blistering burning. This wicked man's lips are like a scorching fire. Turn to Proverbs 26 with me. Proverbs 26, verse 20. Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. Chapter 26, verse 20. So, where there is no tail-bearer, the strife ceaseth. That's practical, isn't it? That means sometimes, if you find someone who does not repent of his tail-bearing, it's time for him to be removed. As coals are to burning coals, and wood to fire... So is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Burning lips and a wicked heart are like a potsherd covered with silver dross. He that hateth dissembleth with his lips. You understand what God is telling you here? He's saying, when someone likes to spread lies about others, this is a hater. This is not love. Love edifies and builds up, even when it has to reprove. But the wicked man is constantly finding fuel to keep that fire going. And he dissembleth with his lips. He is false. He is phony. And he layeth up deceit within him. When he speaketh fair, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. You see, brethren, there are those who love to build up that fire and keep it going. And once that one goes out, they like to go ahead and light up another one. Oh, may it not be found among the Lord's children. Brethren, that is so dishonoring to Christ in an assembly of His. God has given us a tongue 
to love and to encourage and to motivate and to build one another up in the faith of Jesus Christ. Not to set fires to destroy. Gossip is idle talk. Rumors about others. Sometimes it's not something that's false. It might be true. But it doesn't need to be said. It doesn't need to be passed on. Brethren, I'm guilty of this. You are guilty of this. And we must repent before God. Leviticus 19.16 This is such an important issue that God in His law says in Leviticus 19.16 Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people. I will even share something with you that just to give you some idea of how these things work. I don't like to bring myself up here and I'm not trying to put myself in any particular kind of light. I just want to give you a recent example of the very thing I'm talking about. Someone that I've never even met <laughs> recently told someone, that told someone, that told me. They weren't coming to this church because this new fellow came to push out the pastor. Is this not amazing, brethren? When you've never even laid eyes on people. But that's the fire. And it goes. God says, don't do it. It's that simple. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13. A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. We must be very careful what we share and what we do not. But notice, he that is of a faithful spirit, a faithful spirit, he covers the matter. He doesn't talk about it unless absolutely necessary under biblical conditions. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19. He that goeth about as a talebearer revealeth secrets. Christians, brethren, must be extremely careful in this matter. As I said before, many pious gossips express concern for sin, often in the form of prayer requests. And they just go and light their fires, saying, oh, let's pray. Let's pray for so-and-so, because, because, because. Now, there's a place for you coming to me and saying, Brother Shelton had a rough night. Let's pray for him. All right. That's fine. That's spoken of in the prayer meeting. That's legitimate. But brethren... Who has authorized you to go around taking people's personal matters and telling them to others under the guise of prayer unless you've been asked to do so? Let's be of a faithful spirit and conceal the matter unless constrained by some biblical principle to do otherwise. John Dryden, a 17th century British dramatist and poet, 
once commented on man's propensity to gossip. Listen to his verse. There is a lust in man no charm can tame of loudly publishing his neighbor's shame. Hence, on eagles' wings, immortal scandals fly, while virtuous actions are but born and die. We don't talk very often about what a wonderful thing someone's doing, do we? But it sure is easy to talk about those wretched things we think they're doing. Oh, brethren, the flesh loves this and harbors it. The teachers of God's people must bridle their tongues and walk as examples for the Lord's precious flock. And then God's people are to submit to this word and walk in that way. Turn with me to Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26, verse 21. As coals are to burning coals, as I've already said, and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Contention is spoken of throughout the Scripture and and is very often tied to the tongue. Somebody's just got to argue with you with everything you say. Have any children like that? Are you like that? Doesn't matter what the boss says. You've got to say something back. Doesn't matter what your husband says to your wife. You've got to tell him where he's wrong or what, he's, what this is all about. How he doesn't understand. Contention. Quarrelsome. The pastors in the church bring the Word of God. All but, all but, all but I read this book. But the so-and-so out there who has this big ministry, he says this. Quarrelsome, contentious. Brethren, there's even a way to enter into disagreement with our brethren that exalts Christ. We need to learn those things. We sit down, we read a passage, we read a book by someone, and we're now ready to correct everyone that's ever been. So easy. And we become contentious and quarrelsome. Turn with me to Romans 1. And this will be our last example of this for this evening. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Now, we're going to talk about a reprobate mind. A mind cast off by God. And I want you to watch in this list how often sins of the tongue are mentioned. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. God gave them over. He judicially let them go to follow after the pursuits of their wicked, rejected minds to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, which is very often expressed by the tongue, full of envy, which is often expressed in the tongue, 
murder, debate. That's not the legitimate form of debate, but the idea of one who is constantly arguing and debating, so to speak, with authority. Deceit. Well, what is deceit? Most of the time it's lies, which is the tongue. Malignity. Whisperers. That's gossips. Backbiters. Those are gossips. Haters of God. How do you know? Most of the time by what they say. As well as what they do. Despiteful. Proud. Boasters. Tongue. 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 Inventors of evil things. Disobedient to parents. And how often is that disobedience manifested by the tongue? No, I won't. But why? They get to. Without understanding. Covenant breakers. That's those that make promises. Sometimes that's on paper. Sometimes that's verbal. Without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. They're not only not ashamed and repentant of such, but they actually like to see others that do it as well. Brethren, this is sobering. What is that the sign of? That God has given them over. The Scriptures go on to say the tongue is a world of iniquity, or James does here, the tongue is corrupting, that the tongue is set on fire by hell, the tongue is untamable, the tongue is deadly, the tongue is hypocritical. Well, let's move from this to the only hope for the tongue. This will be our last head this evening. What is the one hope for tongues of this state? Now, brethren, I know sometimes when we get into something like this and the, the mirror of the Word is held up before us, sometimes when it, lights, when it lights upon our hearts, when the Lord takes the sword of the Spirit and sets it in, it's, it's almost hard to believe that we could even be Christians. And friends, sometimes we're not. The Christians can fall into this great sin. What's our hope? What's the hope for the tongue? And brethren, it's the grace of Jesus Christ. The life and forgiveness that is in Christ. First, we need pardon for the sins of the tongue. Brethren, we've looked at but a very small panorama in the large volume of biblical sins concerning the tongue. We just looked at a fraction tonight. He said, there's more, and there's much more. We need pardon for the sins of our tongues. And brethren, I tell you tonight, there's pardon in the blood of Jesus Christ. Brethren, as I said last week and as I repeat again, I can only imagine how many sins of the tongue held Christ to the cross. We tend to think of 
adultery and murder and all of these types of things as being these great, horrible sins. And yet, how often Christians who are out there saying, you know, we're against abortion, and we should be, and we're against this, and we're against these perversions, and and we're against these things. When was the last time you ever saw anybody pick at his tongue? Or anybody else's tongue? Wicked tongue here! Pray for me! Let us take the promise of Christ and bring our tongues to Him for cleansing. He's gracious. He's good. Come unto me, all ye that labor. And brethren, when you begin to see the sins of your tongue, you labor. And heavy laden, oh, it bears you down. You know, if you'd never committed any other sin, your tongue would sink you to hell a million times over. There's mercy with the Lord. His blessed tongue promises to wash away all of our sins by faith in Him. Repent and believe Christ. Secondly, we need new hearts by the regenerating power of the Spirit. This is what the lost man needs. The reason he can't control his tongue is because he needs a new heart. But the Christian needs encouragement and to believe his Christ regarding the sanctifying work of the Spirit. As I've said to you many times, and you'll hear me say many times more, I have more hope for someone who's in the battle and struggling. I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. Well, what's the problem? I'm struggling, wrestling with my tongue. Good. Struggle on. Trusting Christ in His grace, looking to His promises. War against that tongue. Forge in prayer and in faith in Christ the bridle and the bit for that little member. Brethren, you can because you are Christ's child. Peter promises us that we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. That means you've got in Christ the power to control the tongue. Believe your God. There's good news for the tongue. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He's not trying to be. He is. The trying is simply to work out what He is. If you've been born of God's Spirit, you are the Son of God. You are His child. Walk as what you are. Believe not only that Christ has died to wash your sins away, but believe that He's given you His Spirit to make you like Him. Trust what He has done in you as well as what He has done for you. Walk in the promises of new life in Christ. Finally, we have a great hope. Philippians chapter 2. It's tied directly to this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. In fact, back up to verse 12. Whereof, my beloved, 
as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For. I'm glad it didn't stop at verse 12. It says, For it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now the reprobate can say, well, you know, well, let me put it this way. I'll take the hard word reprobate off. It's certainly true. But let me say, there is the one who's religious, but who has not been born of God's Spirit, who says, well, you know, I know I ought to quit this, and I know I ought to stop that, and yet never does. But for God's people, it is to will and to do. To will and to do. God, by the miracle of the new birth, gives a new heart to desire the things of Christ. And as His children, born of His Spirit, we are to walk according to who we are. We're not trying to be the sons of God. He's made us His children by His glorious work. Be who He has made you to be by faith in Him and by faith in Him and the work of the Spirit. Obedience to His Word. Bridle your tongue, brethren. It is a world of iniquity. May they become fountains of praise and edification to the glory of Jesus Christ. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.